In order to support your meditation practice, today's Satna Dhamma Talk will be about a couple of qualities that are really helpful in order to um, practice smoothly. And certainly at times we might certainly be hitting some difficulty and in such a situation the quality, the mental quality of patience as well as neutrality of mind as well as the knowledge of Fatna equanimity about Fatna formations, then composure, and Fatna then finally the six-factored equanimity. All of those might be quite useful. Now, in praise of Fatna patience, the Buddha has uttered Dhammapada verse 184, which says the best moral practice is patience and forbearance or endurance. Nibbana is supreme. A bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni or a late retreatant does not harm others. One who harms others is not a true retreatant. Now, another Dhammapada verse, namely number 399, will help us for a better understanding of what is meant by patience. Patience in regard to what? Under which circumstances? Him or her I call a Brahmana, who, without anger, endures abuse, beating, and being bound, to whom the strength of patience is like the strength of an army. So, not responding, not retaliating to abuse, beating, or being ridiculed, whatever it might be, but rather to endure this. So the Jataka and in its third volume, section 40, then describes it as the psychological ability of a person not to become angered when one is reviled, when one is beaten and slandered by others. Now, this is actually not so easy to do. Our normal, our normal reaction is one of retaliating, of wanting to hit back physically or at least verbally. Now, yet for a still better understanding of patience, the definition as given in the Dhamma Sangani by way of synonyms might certainly help a bit further. Namely, the Dhamma Sangani says patience is 
or patience, yeah, patience is the ability of a person to forgive. So it's not just to endure you know, being reviled, being beaten and certainly what not, but certainly to forgive. And this in the Pali scripture language is known as Gamanata. Now, the second aspect is that indeed of endurance, namely to bear up or to endure in the Pani scripture language given as Adiwasanata. Now, then we have three further qualities that certainly are being associated with patience, and certainly those are gentleness, achandikam in the Pani scripture language, then freedom from harshness, namely anasurupo, and finally contentment of mind, atamanata chitasa, again in the Pali scriptural language. So the ability to forgive, to endure gentleness, freedom from harshness, and certainly contentment. Now, the commentary to the Charya Pitaka that certainly was compiled certainly by uh, Acharya Dhammapala defines patience in the classical fourfold way, namely by saying its characteristic is that of acceptance. And its function is to endure both the desirable as well as the undesirable. So, in the course of our human existence, we are likely to come across desirable objects. We're also likely to come across undesirable objects, whatever it might be, to then encounter those, to endure those with patience. Then its manifestation is as tolerance or as non-opposition. And finally, its proximate cause is that of seeing things as they really are, which is an expression for wisdom. So the presence of wisdom, truly understanding a situation, one can no longer retaliate, maybe some compassion arises, and for the situation, for the person, people involved, and certainly then it's so much easier to respond with patience. Now, It can, or it needs to be, understood that we live in a world of imperfection. Now, we might certainly wrongly perceive ourselves as being perfect human beings. However, others for sure will not be. And certainly, so living in a world together with other human beings, they will all have certain failings in one way or another. And so, patience is required in the face of the failings of others. Now, 
among all human beings, the only being that certainly can be considered really perfect is certainly the Buddha. And are you up to this mark? Obviously not. <laughs> now, Venerable Mahasi side of Ferdinand Burma, you know, who you know, very much propagated this style of uh, Vipassana meditation that we're practicing during you know, this Satna retreat, clarified that uh, mm, patience is the Dhamma, uh, that mental condition that is contrary to anger, the antidote to anger or antithesis to anger and specifically it comes under the technical term of adosa. Dosa is the Pali word for ill will, anger and so on. The Prefix A marks the opposite, so non-anger, absence of anger, non-hatred. Now, it needs to be stated that patience itself is not mentioned as a separate mental factor, just like loving-kindness metta. Both of those come under the heading of adosa, non-hatred. Gentleness also comes under that same heading. Now, so this patience, as we've seen, is to endure any kind of provocation and not to retaliate, to remain calm without certain anger. Now, the venerable Masi side of Burma points out that in comparing the two, namely patience and loving-kindness, it is loving-kindness metta that is more comprehensive, that goes far further, because not only is there patience, but there's wishing for the welfare and happiness of others. Now, how do we experience patience in our own meditation practice? In the course of, you know, of intensive practice, we're likely you know, to come across both desirable as well as undesirable objects. And it is with regard to them that you know, we, you know, in practice patients, we try to endure them. Now, it is not only with regard to those you know, desirable as well as undesirable physical as well as mental objects you know, that we practice patience, but also towards certain of the failings of uh, other human beings, in particular right here, our fellow you know, retreatants. So at times, someone might be doing something that might uh, you know, then... Uh, be maybe uh, not quite 
uh, uh, appropriate in the context of an intensive retreat and Sapnya then simply to endure this and not make a big thing out of it. Or it certainly could certainly happen that certainly maybe, but I don't hope so during this retreat. Some yeah, retreat and get so upset uh, with a fellow retreat and that uh, you know, our you know, first retreat and writes a nasty note and then puts it uh, up on the notice board to uh, fellow yogi XYZ. XYZ then sooner or later uh, passes that bulletin board, sees the note, and thinks here comes a nice message, opens, uh, opens up the piece of paper and finds this really nasty message. And this will ruin his or her day. And suddenly so it is in such an, uh, under such a circumstance um, or such a condition uh, that certainly uh, we do uh, then require uh, uh, lots of uh, patience and not to take the note too uh, seriously and uh, maybe just set it aside and certainly focus on one's own practice, maybe also you know, to radiate your thoughts of loving kindness towards that other uh, yogi, maybe you know, to write, write a note back. Thank you very much for your advice. It's well taken. I will try to uh, uh, clean up my acts. Uh, sorry to have disturbed you. And so maybe with this, certainly then, uh, the thing is certainly taken care of. Now, um, as to the weather conditions, is there anyone we can write notes to? <laughs> well, um, there's no one that we can write notes to, there's no one to complain to, so I guess all that remains is really to remain patient. Now, um, there might, even though we're at this fabulous Satna retreat, Satna center, there might still be this or that Satna thing, that Satna we don't like Satna too much, maybe the teaks, or later on, end of, end of June, more probably towards Satna July, there will be those flies. And if they land on your face, Satna, then it's not going to be very pleasant. And Satna so, thought, yeah, then, and for this kind of a situation, lots of uh, patience will be required. Now, in general, we can say that uh, in the course of our meditation practice, the development will be from, let's say, an initial impatience with the failings of others, maybe even our own shortcomings, to an increasing patience. We can say that in the course of a mindfulness retreat, Satipatthana retreat, over time our patience is bound to grow stronger and stronger. Why is this? Because there are all these many challenges coming up. So, a pain might arise in you know, the knee, and suddenly then 
sitting in the meditation hall, there's no way to you know, escape the situation. So you have to face the pain. And this thing requires certain patience. And if previously you were able to tolerate the pain only for five minutes, now this time around maybe you manage to tolerate it for seven minutes. That's already a noticeable improvement of your patience. Now, next sitting, you know, that pain might be back again, happily arising, and suddenly then you, know, you might increase your tolerance towards suddenly the pain you know, to maybe 10 minutes. Again, your patience has suddenly grown a bit suddenly stronger. And then there are all those many you know, difficult mental states, in particular the hindrances that come up you know, on various occasions, and uh, we need plenty of patience towards certain them. Now, the relevance of patience is relevance of patience, in, especially in the context of intensive mindfulness practice, is expressed in a Burmese saying, namely, patience leads to nibbana, thikan ma nibbana yaute in the Burmese certain language. So it is only when you develop quite some degree of patience that the realization of Nibbana will be possible. Now, we need patience both in the mindfulness meditation, so Vipassana practice or Satipatthana meditation, as well as in the Samatha meditation. Now, the Buddha speaks of patience regarding others' speech. This might be less appropriate during an intensive retreat because we don't engage very much in communication, but outside of a retreat, this advice will be very or might be very useful. The, in the 21st discourse of the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, in paragraph 11, the Buddha says, because bhikkhunis and lay retreatants, there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness or with inner hate. And so, so we can, with regard to the words others utter, we cannot always choose. Sometimes we can't help to hear words that really hurt, that certainly are like a dart 
or like a spear that is piercing into the body. Now, the Buddha goes on to propose or to say, O retreatants, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil word, no unwholesome words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without sudden inner hate. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness and starting with him or her. We shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train. Now, that's Acharya Dhammapada in his commentary recommended the following uh, reflection with regard to patience. Namely, he says, when there is patience, the mind becomes concentrated, free from external distraction. And this then, when the mind is concentrated, then we will experience formations as being impermanent, as being unsatisfactory, and we see formations as not identical with the self, and eventually we experience that unconditioned state of Nibbana. So, in other words, patience is really a way to improve our practice, a way that leads to, a way that supports, strengthens concentration, and based on the concentration, intuitive wisdom can unfold. Now, the foremost role model in regard to patience was certainly the Buddha himself. On one occasion, his cousin Devadatta bribed an elephant tamer, asked him to give the elephant much liquor to drink. This is what the elephant tamer did. And then this intoxicated, fierce, and very strong Nalagiri then charged towards Satna the Buddha, intending to run him over. And it is that the Buddha responded with loving kindness to the elephant Nalagiri, and he stopped charging at Satna the Buddha. And Satna, rather than going and beating up Devadatta, the Buddha simply exercised patience. Now, the, um, a very 
uh, far-reaching instruction with regard to to patience as given by the Buddha to his disciples is as follows, namely, because remain unaffected even though bandits were to sever your your limbs limb by sever your limbs limb by limb. Now this is going to take a lot of practice. <laughs> but anyways, even if we don't have that much patience, and I don't think that our patience will be tested to that extent, yet if we have maybe just one-fourth of that, then it's not so bad. Now, in praise of Fatna patience, the Mangalatna Sutta says the following, namely in verse 266 of the Sutta Nipata, it says, Patience, obedience, meeting those who have calmed the mental defilements and discussing the Dhamma on a suitable occasion, this is the highest blessing. Now, obviously, much more could be said on patience, but you know, we don't have that much time. Now, the next focus will be on equanimity, or in other words, neutrality of mind in the Pali scriptural language known as Tatra Majatata. A relatively well-known illustration for this we find in Dhammapada verse 81 where it, is, where it says as a mountain of rock is unshaken by wind so too the wise are unperturbed by blame or praise so at times you might certainly want to remember that mountain of rock. That mountain of rock is neither affected by you know, rain you know, falling onto it or you know, snow falling onto it or by cold weather, hot weather or you know, people even throwing garbage onto it. The mountain of rock remains pretty much unperturbed. Now, the Buddha speaks of eight worldly conditions, the so-called um, loka atta loka dhamma, and. Uh, conditions that uh, we all have to face uh, on occasion, including you know, the Buddha, and uh, you know, those are four pairs of opposites. The first one is, first pair is gain and loss, honor, fame, companionship on one side, and uh, you know, then dishonor on the other side. Then you know, we have blame and praise as the third pair, and then happiness versus suffering or misery. Now, usually you know, what happens when we gain something 
or we get something praised, or we gain an, an we're given an award, and or we experience a state of well-being. Well, then the face will light up. There will be a smile on our face, and every life is okay. But on the other hand, if let's say we lose a very dear relative or a friend or maybe we get disgraced or we get wrongly blamed for something and suddenly life is just an utter misery then that smile on the face very quickly vanishes <laughs> So it is certain equanimity that is needed in the face of these eight certain worldly conditions. Now, this equanimity has been described in different ways, and these certain might help to get a bit better understanding of what is meant. So equanimity has been referred to as balance of mind or as equipoise, as detachment but not as indifference. Detachment not to be understood as disinterest, a certain disinterestedness. And then also as certain impartiality or as certain you know, the state of being there in the middle, as neutrality of mind, the zero point between the extremes such as craving and aversion, fear and certain delight. A modern expression for it would be the non-reactivity of you know, the mind. Now, this equanimity you know, should not be mistaken with you know, the neutral feeling, uh, which is not the same thing. These are two you know, different you know, things. So, that ignorance, disinterestedness, both of those are you know, based in a lack of knowledge Anyana in the Pali scriptural language, and so they have nothing to do with true equanimity. So, the classical definition of equanimity is as having or possessing the characteristic of evenly conveying consciousness and the mental factors, which means that the mind is really working, really operating smoothly. There are, at that point, there are no excesses, no excesses of effort or no concentration, no excess of faith or no excess of, let's say, an intellectual cunningness. And so, so the mind is really in a pretty balanced state. Now, the function of Fatna equanimity is to prevent both deficiency as well as any form of excess, and then furthermore to prevent partiality. 
Now, it is manifested as certain neutrality or you know, that certain state certain in you know, the middle. Now, when we develop more and more equanimity in our meditation practice towards whatever is happening in terms of rise and fall, in terms of pains and aches and pleasant sensations and desirable mental states, undesirable mental states, then gradually more and more equanimity will arise. And this equanimity will then gradually also extend towards our fellow human beings. And then gradually we stop having preferences, we stop being partial. So having, you know, preference or, or thinking in terms of stereotypes, thinking lowly of nationals of a certain country and thinking highly of nationals of a different country and so on and so forth. So we drop preferences and prejudices. Clearly, this neutrality or this state of there in the middle is one of the 25 beautiful mental factors, Sobhana Chetasika, in the Pali scriptural language. And more specifically, it is one of those 19 universal beautiful mental factors, Sobhana Sadharana, in the Pali scriptural language. It arises only together with wholesome consciousness and not together with unwholesome or functional consciousness. Now, for a better understanding of equanimity, the Venerable Nisayadu Pandita has come up with a really helpful illustration. Namely, he speaks of that billikin or a tumbling kelly. Both the same thing. You might remember a toy that is kind of shaped like a raindrop and has a heavy bottom, usually made out of metal. And the top of it is rather pointed. So then when you push it over to one side, then what will happen? And you let it go, then it will fall over. It will not suddenly tip over, but rather it will come to to the center. There you go. And that's the important part. It comes back to center. And so equanimity is that mental state that again and again comes back to center, even though, let's say, some extreme mental state arises, like fear, yet the mind doesn't go back, go there, it comes back to center. Even though pleasure might briefly arise in the mind, yet the attention will not go there, and it comes instead, it comes back to center. So that's just... A few general remarks about equanimity or neutrality. And now, 
let's get a bit more specific and take a closer look at a particular insight knowledge that involves equanimity, namely the knowledge of equanimity about certain formations. So keep in mind this is an insight knowledge. Sankara upeka jnana in the Pali scriptural language. Sankara means your conditioned formations, formations that are conditioned by anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And then upeka has the meaning of equanimity, and jnana is the Pali term for knowledge, intuitive knowledge, insight knowledge. So the insight knowledge of equanimity towards all conditioned formations. Now, this particular insight certain knowledge has been defined in slightly varying ways in both the Patisamira Magga as well as the Nevisudi Magga. So one you know, definition from the Visuddhi Magga, namely its fourth chapter, paragraph 161, is as follows. Equanimity about formations is a name for equanimity consisting in neutrality about understanding uh, reobservation or the knowledge of reobservation and furthermore composure regarding the hindrances and other uh, events. So, equanimity towards the knowledge of reobservation and then also composure. We'll talk more in, in greater detail about composure in a few minutes. The Patisambhita Magga defines it slightly differently in its first volume sections no, paragraphs 306 to 330, and there it says, ins the insight knowledge of desire of deliverance, which is an insight knowledge by itself, the plus the knowledge of reobservation and of composure, those certain three things together then make up what is known as the knowledge of equanimity about formations. So that just to give you the definitions, give you a better idea of what we're talking about. Now, six really salient features of this knowledge of equanimity have been described. So features that describe its main, some of its main aspects. The first one is an absence of fear and pleasure. The second one is that pain and pleasure are viewed or seen with equanimity rather than a lack of equanimity or reactivity of the mind. Now, once meditation tends to be effortless, so the effort comes naturally, and certainly the meditation kind of carries on 
partner automatically. Once a certain momentum has certainly been established, when Mahasi Sahaja says, once having labeled, observed, and you know, known you know, the first couple of objects, maybe 10, 15, 20 objects, then you know, the practice kind of like just rolls on you know, with its own momentum, and suddenly you can you know, kind of Mm, you know, f mm, you don't need to put in that effortful effort uh, anymore. Now, as one's equanimity in meditation deepens, one finds that one can sit, one can practice for longer and longer periods of time. Now, with uh, one's meditation lasting longer and longer, comes about an, an increasing refinement, which is the next certain feature. And so, mm, a refinement of you know, the objects to be observed, as well as of the observing and knowing mind itself. And so, you know, this is a gradual process. So during this particular you know, phase in the practice, mm, Retreatants oftentimes wait for something spectacular you know, to happen. You know that esoteric, uh, uh, <laughs> esoteric, colorful you know, experience that all of a sudden descends upon you. But sorry to say, you know, that's not it. But rather, it's a process of increasing refinement. That's uh, where uh, the development uh, lies. And this then uh, eventually uh, leads to the realization of the Dhamma. Now, the sixth uh, feature is that once meditation is fixed or uh, fixed and steady and the mind recoils and uh, the mind does not wander to any other uh, objects. Now, what is meant by the mind is recoiling. It recoils from a multitude of objects and rather limits itself to the observation of three, four major objects. It will spend a lot of time on one object at a time and then when that one subsides or becomes indiscernible, then the attention moves on to the next object, stays with that for a longer period of time and then that also becomes, let's say, indiscernible and then again the attention moves on to the third object and so on. And indeed, our meditation becomes very increasingly steady. At first, that steadiness is not certainly there. During the earlier insight knowledge, so not the knowledge of equanimity, but certain formations, owing to the experience of a number of pairs of opposites, there's a lot of movement in the practice. There's, there's lots of movements in the mind itself, the mind being thrown from one extreme into the other in terms of physical experiences, from heaviness towards lightness in the body, and then 
and you know, from uh, hardness towards softness and uh, various movements towards suddenness, stillness of uh, you know, the body. So there's not much shutness, steadiness there. But as our practice deepens and you know, all of these you know, movements subside and suddenly uh, you know, then one finds one can sit for long periods of time you know, with a body that is upright, you know, still and surprisingly very relaxed and all of this is happening naturally in an effortless manner. So the practice comes uh, becomes quite certainly easy. Now it's not so easy to then gain this uh, uh, state of mature and steady knowledge of equanimity towards all formations. It does require training. And one might find that as one is trying to establish more and more equanimity towards certain formations, what happens? the practice drops off. So, owing to some disturbance, owing to a lack of continuity of mindfulness, one gets caught up in this or that certain object, and since everything is so refined, the practice drops off. And suddenly then you experience a nosedive. Now, this being the case, you just have to deal you know, with this drop in your practice and uh, you'll just have to recognize or oh, no, recognize and accept that your practice has temporarily dropped off and then start all over again. And so, you know, eventually you know, you'll get your equanimity back and uh, it will get a bit suddenly stronger than the first you know, time and then sooner or later you, know, you make a, the slightest mistake Maybe um, you look around and uh, no, let's say you pick up some a book that seems quite fascinating. You read a page or two, and this throws you off balance. So and then, in your next sitting, you remember what you've read, and so, yeah, then yeah, it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to know what is really going on, and suddenly so, uh, your practice is suddenly so, yeah, then um, falling apart, literally falling apart. So this could be you know, termed as the so-called yo-yo effect, suddenly so, yeah, in. Yeah, the meditation practice. So Venerable Sadhu Pandita speaks of the tumbling Kelly, and so, yeah, we can yeah, then add the term yo-yo effect uh, to our uh, vocabulary, yeah, which yeah, then helps us to understand what is certainly going on. Now, as we practice more and more, will be less and less subject to this yo-yo effect and equanimity becomes stronger and stronger. And it's less easy to get thrown off balance. Now, as part of the development of this particular insight knowledge is an increasing 
and really necessary understanding of the three universal characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and understanding that formations are not identical with the self. Now, if a retreatant has not, let's say, mastered one or the other, has not, let's say, gained a mature understanding of anatta, then the practice will not certainly move ahead. And so it will turn in cycles until the homework gets done, until a better understanding of anatta is there, and then things move ahead. Now, as part of the development of this particular insight knowledge, we might certainly find that the awakening factors or enlightenment factors arise. They tend to arise in a sequential order. We've discussed this in an earlier Dhamma talk last week. And also, we might certainly find that our mindfulness becomes certainly pretty sharp, that it certain the mindfulness is in the foreground for a while. Then, as we keep as we're aware of whatever prominent object that comes up, there's an interest to carefully investigate what is really happening, to investigate more carefully. We then go deeper, we make new discoveries, our practice benefits from this, and then more energy is certain or becomes available and certainly so we put in more effort and then that we find based on all of these certain things some word you know we're pleased with our practice joy arises and that joy at first may be still a bit coarse, over time gradually becomes more refined, and this then leads on to a stillness of first the body, then later on a stillness of the mind, and the stillness of the mind is nothing other than the enlightenment factor, awakening factor of basadi of tranquility. And so, that in turn then prepares, when there's stillness in the mind, this prepares the ground for the arising of concentration. And when the mind is calm, still, as well as concentrated, mindfulness is present and so on, then equanimity arises. Now, there are various ways of strengthening this particular insight knowledge. And so one is mm, repeatedly and profoundly seeing formations as Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta, as explained, and then to be very careful not to get carried away with a sense of self. So if on occasion a sense of self arises with regard to the rising and falling movement of the abdomen or the observation of some other object, mental object, then to immediately be mindful of that self there and to take this as an object and to observe it, to know it, and then sooner or later it will fall away. 
continuity of mindfulness during this phase is more important than ever before. So sometimes retreat and so think, well, my practice has become already this good. Now, finally, I can slacken off a little bit and certainly take a short certain vacation, not certain so. Once mindfulness needs to become even more continuous. So we need to strengthen or perfect relevant mental factors, such as those enlightenment factors, such as certainly the controlling faculties of faith, of effort or energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And furthermore, we will find that our perception over time also will improve greatly. Now, in order for this knowledge of equanimity to deepen, it's important that we don't get stuck here or there it's while observing some object. It's important that we, as the science and venerable side Upanita explains, that certain we do not suddenly hitch. So don't get caught up in some object. Caught up in the sense of getting involved in the content of the story and getting sidetracked and certain with that we lose the momentum and our practice no longer moves ahead. So not to get entangled here or there. Now, if you've practiced for two or three or four months in a row, you will have observed the rising falling movement of the abdomen, the wandering mind, and the sloth and torpor, and pains and aches, not just hundreds of times, not just a thousand of times, but probably ten thousands, you know, thousands of footnote times. And with this comes a certain detachment is certain equanimity or neutrality and that is something important to have. Now keeping one's body still and upright helps and certainly then we might certainly gradually also discover that formations are really on aren't all that certainly great and with this the mind naturally then kind of turns away from them is no longer attracted by them is no longer attached by them now what this certain knowledge of equanimity does is it brings about mostly wholesome mental states. So faith is a wholesome mental state. Mindfulness itself is wholesome. And equanimity is wholesome. Wisdom is wholesome. And so on, certainly, and so forth. So it's a rather healthy, overall, rather healthy state of 
mind. And it feels quite different you know, from a state of mind where you know, lots of unwholesome mental states suddenly you know, arise. Now, and suddenly you know, this particular you know, point in the you know, practice, the mind has two fabulous certain or gains two fabulous qualities the first one being a repelling power and the second one being a resistance power so let's talk about the resistance power first in the case of a sapling that is growing somewhere outside, it will have to resist or withstand the vicissitudes of the weather. Sometimes the heat, sometimes the cold, sometimes strong wind, sometimes even snow, rain, and so on. However, uh, if the sapling manages you know, to do all of this, then you know, it certainly uh, will you know, then gradually turn into a full-fledged plant or you know, tree. Now, likewise, you know, the mind needs to gradually gain this resistance power to resist or withstand uh, you know, the vicissitudes you know, that suddenly come up you know, during our human uh, existence. So this could be internal as well as external. The first certain quality is certainly that of the repelling power of the mind, which means nothing sticks to it. So even if someone hurls a verbal abuse at you, it simply just doesn't affect you. It just slides off. And certainly the closest illustration for it near this is certainly indeed the Teflon pan, frying pan. So you throw some meat in there, a steak, and then you fry it, and it will not stick to your frying pan. So that's that both of those qualities, the repelling power as well as the resistance power, both of them are extremely useful during retreat itself, but also outside of retreat. Now, since we're already beyond time, let me end here and suddenly then we'll talk about composure and suddenly that six-factored equanimity tomorrow. Allow me to conclude by wishing equipped with good patience, with neutrality of mind, and may you then gradually gain that intuitive knowledge of equanimity about formations. May you experience for yourself certainly these wonderful qualities of this particular face in one's meditation practice. May you experience that repelling power, that resistance power, and then with a mind that is healthy, strong, well-balanced, may the mind cross over to that unconditioned certain state that is said to be so peaceful. And this is it for today.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.